friends, let us begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Is there a way, as a parent, to keep from passing on my neurotic foibles to my children? This is a concern for me, and it's because of the Play-Doh. It's the Play-Doh that has me worried, friends, and I don't mean to be overdramatic, but I am not sure that that colorful and squishy play-modeling compound brings out my best traits. I love the concept of Play-Doh, you understand. Don't hear me wrong. I love Play-Doh. I love that it's an open-ended toy that encourages creativity and exploration. I love that it quietly builds hand strength, which is so useful for life and particularly for handwriting skills. I love that it's an inexpensive toy that provides a nearly universal childhood experience because everyone plays with Play-Doh. I even love the way it smells when you open a new canister, though not nearly enough to buy the Play-Doh brand cologne that I'm sorry to report does, in fact, exist. And this is a total aside from everything, but I got a picture of that because I'm not sure you'd believe that it exists unless you saw it. 50th anniversary of Play-Doh, they said everyone loves the smell of Play-Doh, so we're making a cologne. And I don't know how it's sold, but you can still buy it. And that was a decade or two ago, so I don't know what that means. I love Play-Doh. I love the concept of Play-Doh. I love Play-Doh in a controlled environment, but unfortunately my house is not a controlled environment unless I am particularly vigilant and carefully supervise the Play-Doh play to prevent the unthinkable and probably inevitable tragedy of Play-Doh, which is when you take two colors of Play-Doh and you mix them together because they're never coming back apart. Now, it's not so much a problem at this moment. I'm thinking ahead a little bit. At nearly two years old, most of the fun right now with Play-Doh seems to be in taking the Play-Doh out of the canister and then putting it right back into the canister because you get to match the color of the lid to the color of the dough, and that's very thrilling. But I know that one day I will be confronted with the reality that the most thrilling, the most exciting artistic creations made with Play-Doh demand more than a single color. But when Play-Doh colors mix, they can never again be separated. Once, once they even touch friends, it's just a long, slow march towards some massive and terrible blob of greenish, grayish, brownish clay, a blob that you can do nothing but divide and store back in those little canisters with those colorful lids that taunt you because your clay will never be that colorful again. And so one day, I am going to have to decide what the lesson I'm going to teach with Plato will be. Will I teach how to keep things where they belong and looking good? Or am, gonna, am I going to teach to embrace the mess? But I suppose that if the lesson doesn't come from me, it might still come. And if it doesn't come with Plato, it might still come because the most basic rules in our world might well be about what belongs where and doesn't belong somewhere else and, and who belongs where and not somewhere else. Because without hardly even needing to be taught, we learned these rules about who belongs in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our jails, 
match the Play-Doh to the container and put it there and there only. There are rules about what belongs where, and it should stay where it belongs. So we cannot be all that surprised when Jesus tells us that the servants go to the landowner and said, do you want us to go and weed the field? Because any good farmer would say, yes, there are rules about what belongs in a field and what does not, and the weeds do not belong in the field. The wheat belongs in the field alone. The very presence of the weeds is an infiltration. It is a mess encroaching on the carefully planned plot. It is an impediment to the wheat and a disaster waiting to happen come harvest time. Because if we can forget for a minute what comes next. If we can keep from justifying the way Jesus continues the story because we know the way Jesus continues the story, well, then we can without a doubt know that weeding a field is the only thing to do when there are weeds in your field. We know that now, and they knew that then. There is a first century recorded document of a Roman writer who pointed out that neglecting to weed a field diminishes the harvest that the field can produce. The only thing you can do when you are a good farmer is weed the field. But this is a parable, and parables never seem to go the way that we'd expect. Jesus is fond of parables throughout the Gospels, much to the frustrations of his disciples who asked him, in fact, earlier this chapter, why do you use parables? when you speak to the crowds. And Jesus gives them an explanation, though it is not all that helpful or easy to understand. And he points out his use of parables as a fulfillment of scriptures. He repeats that again here in the passage we heard. And he says something about how parables allow the crowds to hear without really hearing, to let the words come in but not be understood. And it becomes clear that the disciples, who are supposed to understand apparently, because they're on the inside, the inner circle with Jesus, well, they still don't understand much either, because they ask Jesus to explain what in the world he's talking about. They ask him earlier this chapter, and they ask him again, and so Jesus gives an explanation, and we heard him. The field is the world, and the wheat are the kingdom followers, and the harvesters and the angels, and so on, and so on. But as much as we might wish it would make the whole parable plain and simple, it still doesn't take away the twist that leaves the listener puzzled. Why wouldn't the landowner want to weed the field? The point of parables seems to be in the puzzle, so that we cannot understand the world and the parable at the same time. The way that the parable operates is so backwards from the world that we know and we live in that the only way to let it stand upright is to accept the way that we've been living is all backwards. The first shall be last, Jesus says, and the last shall be first, which is backwards from everything we know. And then later on, Jesus says, well, give it all away so you'll have something to hang on to. Take up your cross and die so that you can live. Do everything backwards, and the kingdom of heaven might start taking shape around you. None of these parables go the way we might think they would. Jesus moves from the parable about wheat and weeds in a field to one about a mustard seed in a field, which isn't all that shocking unless we know the rules that Jesus' audience would have known without ever needing to be taught about what belonged where and not somewhere else, about what was a weed and what was not, because a mustard seed is a weed waiting to sprout. It is something that absolutely does not belong in the middle of a field. It is not something that a farmer would plant. And so Jesus begins his parable 
the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted a weed. This is a parable where nothing belongs. The farmer wouldn't have planted the mustard seed in their field because it didn't belong there. And when the mustard seed grew, there is no way they would have left it alone long enough to grow into something the size of a tree if mustard seeds even grew that tall because a tree doesn't belong in a field. Trees cast shadows. Shadows stop other things from growing. And what do you have a field for if not producing something? And even if the farmer planted the seed and left it alone long enough for it to grow into a tree and then left the tree alone, well, then the last straw would have been the birds because when the birds start nesting in its branches any farmer will tell you birds do not belong in a field because birds eat the seed you're trying to sow and they feast on the food you're trying to grow nothing in this parable belongs a farmer who knew what they were doing would have had none of these things in their fields and I suppose they also wouldn't have had the kingdom of heaven there either the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, arrives and ruins everything we've tried to maintain because we might be trying to protect the wrong things. And then there's that parable about the woman and the yeast, which is lovely and nice and innocuous until you notice that this is the only positive depiction that we get throughout the entirety of Scripture about yeast or leavened bread. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees is what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, and that makes much more sense because yeast was known to be a contaminant. It was an impurity, something to keep out of the flour at all costs because once it went in, there was no getting it out again. One bad apple spoils the bunch is what we might say, and Jesus' followers would have said the same thing about yeast. But apparently, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who hides the yeast in the flour, secretly, perhaps under the cover of darkness, tainting, tainting a massive quantity of flour, a bushel. That's 144 cups of flour. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who ruined our massive stockpiles of food, demanding that we take it and bake it and, I don't know, give it all away and feast on it all at once because there is no saving it any longer. The most basic rules in our world might well be about what belongs where and not somewhere else and about who belongs where and not someone else. And so without ever needing to be taught, we learn the rules about who belongs in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our jails, and so on and so forth. You match the Play-Doh to the container, and you put it there and there only. You protect the wheat in the fields, and you keep out the weeds, because the wheat belongs and the weeds do not. And you protect the harvest in your field, and you keep out the mustard seed and the birds, because neither of those things belong. And you protect the flour that we preserve for ourselves and we keep out the yeast because yeast doesn't belong in flour. We protect the world that we have created and we keep out the kingdom of heaven. And so the landowner says no. Says to pull out the weeds is to uproot the good alongside it. And as much as we might want to disagree, well, we can know well the communities focused on keeping out the bad only often end up stifling the good along the way. Churches have done it all throughout our history. 
It can happen in any number of ways. Sometimes churches do it by trying to set up rules to keep out the weeds and insist that no one can be a part of our fellowship if they use tobacco or alcohol or participate in worldly amusements like dancing or attending movies. And other times, we churches enforce doctrinal purity and only welcome those who can affirm a tightly bound set of delineated beliefs. And still other times, we just try to pull the boundaries close and figure that we can weed a small field better than a large one. And so we keep a tightly knit congregation that can watch over each other with a careful eye at all times. And yet, in every instance, the weeds remain. Even as we buckle down on our rules and our doctrine and our accountability, we pull the boundaries tighter and tighter and tighter until we can hardly remain ourselves except by ignoring the weedier parts of our own selves. And so it is that if we focus on the weeding, we pull up the wheat alongside it. And so the landowner says to the servants, no, let the weeds grow alongside the wheat. They'll be sorted out later. And not by the servants, but by the harvesters, the angels from heaven, those who apparently know what they're doing. Because it's unclear a little bit in the parable why it would be so challenging to separate the wheat from the weeds in the early stages. Perhaps they look too much alike, as people have a tendency to look alike. Perhaps that which is good can look like something that does not belong, and perhaps the thing that appears to be in exactly the right spot is masquerading as something it's not. Perhaps the roots are bound too tightly together and pushing out a weed will pull out a wheat by the roots. Perhaps we really don't know the difference between wheat and weeds anyway. All we can know is what the landowner says, which is that if you try to pull out the weeds, you're going to take the wheat with it. You cannot get rid of the weeds without impacting the wheat. And so we cannot criminalize evil out of existence, and we cannot ostracize it from our churches or our communities. And trying to do so, believing that we can, doubling down on the boundaries might just uproot the good in our midst. The work of the farmer is all backwards in this parable and all backwards apparently in the kingdom of heaven. The farmer does not weed. The farmer simply encourages the growth of the good. The farmer lets the weeds in. Because apparently, God's not worried. We don't need the Play-Doh police around here. We can welcome all in and focus on those things that create and foster new life and growth, and hope, and peace. Because where we look for purity, think that purity is what matters in our fields, well, God cherishes diversity. And where we look for conformity and think conformity matters in our fields, God creates variation. And where we look for uniformity, think uniformity matters in our fields, God builds harmony. When we finally catch a glimpse of perfection, when everything seems just as it should be, we can be settled and calm and confident in what we have created around ourselves. Well, God sneaks in something that's going to spoil that illusion and send us back into the mess of reality. 
There is no creating the perfect field. There is no way that we will ever end up with things so perfect that we get to sit back and watch it all grow. The kingdom of God ruins everything. It ruins everything we have created for ourselves, everything we might wish to hold on to except that one unchanging promise. The weeds will not crowd out the wheat. We'd think they would. That's how it works in the world we know, but God's not worried about the weeds. The weeds will not crowd out the wheat. There is no amount of outside forces that can prevent the kingdom of God from becoming the kingdom of God. There is nothing that can stop God sneaking in under cover of darkness to dash our flower with a bit of yeast. There is nothing that can stop God from planting that mustard seed and nothing that can stop it from growing and holding the whole world in its branches. There is nothing that can stop the kingdom of God, and by golly, if God's not worried, why should we be? There's no reason to weed the fields, and we can focus on harvest, on, well, excuse me, not on harvesting, on tending to what is growing, finding that sometimes incredible things come from the messes that we cannot control and can hardly manage. Because when we get our hands in the dirt and the mud and the mess of this world, then we truly discover it is God who brings all things to life. And what a joy it is to work in the fields of God. Friends, may we be a field of mess and of wonder, and of new life. Amen. I invite us to continue in worship with our next hymn, Come, Ye Thankful People, Come. It's a harvesting hymn, a good one. Number 694.